Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan. I'm Rachel. And I'm Dave. This is a show about work generally, but today we want to examine the opposite. We want to talk about unemployment. Work is so strongly tied with our identities in modern society, but where does that leave those who don't have a job to go to? I get asked the question, what do you do more times in a week than I can keep track of? And I know that when people ask me that, they are actually saying, what do you do to pay your bills? Because that is who you are. But I usually counter with, I do many things, and what I do to pay my bills is actually a very small part of who I am. And most people usually agree, but it's problematic. It's not the answer people are angling for when they ask that. It seems as though people want you to define yourself always by your job. And what we're talking about here is that there are many ways to define oneself, and many of them are much better than your job. Much more important, even. Especially one thing I think is important is that people don't have that much choice in where they work as compared to what their hobbies are or what their opinions are. Most of us are just working wherever we could get a job that paid us enough to live. Yeah, honestly, of my peers, the people I know that are utilizing their degrees and working in whatever field they studied is almost non-existent. It's been a huge problem with this generation, really, is we come into a workforce saddled with college debt, first Mm -hmm. of all, and the ability to use that college degree is uh, limited. And I think we need to get into college. It feels like during my childhood, at least, there was a huge push in my school, in the media, that everyone should go to college if they wanted to have a good life. And now we find ourselves in a labor pool where everyone is college educated and most people are not working in a field that they plan to when they went into their college degree. Yeah, honestly, I feel like the mythology of that is really upsetting. I feel resentful of that lie that we were all fed from a young age that if you do X, Y, and Z, and if you get into a good school, and if you get a degree, then you will be secure. And that is so far from the truth for all of us. I can say just from my experience, I went to college. I graduated early even. And um, after graduating, I spent a year and a half unemployed. And then I got a job that was far below my degree level, I guess you could say. You were overqualified. Right. And if you listen to our show last week... uh, Chris and Ariel had talked about the entry-level job and sort of how that's becoming more of a permanent job for many people in society. And Chris had mentioned sort of feeling the shame of just answering to people, telling them what he did for a living when they expected him as somebody who went to college to be more than working in a movie theater. The expectations don't match reality right now. Yeah. 
And I think if there's sort of a stigma for being overqualified for what you do, for working below your pay grade, so to speak, there's definitely a stigma to unemployment. Absolutely. And I think we need to look at this, uh, you know, this concept of the pay grade or whatever on its face and say that jobs have a class character. And one thing that college gave us, it didn't necessarily give us good jobs or good life prospects, but it did give us, I think, a sense of our own importance, of our own, of what jobs we are now fit for and what jobs we are not. And as someone who's working in a fast food job, holding a college degree, I've thought about this a lot. It seems to me that honestly, if you look at things more objectively, jobs where you serve food to people and things like that are actually, in terms of our biological needs, much more important than upkeeping databases. Mm-hmm. And, That's true. And yet You're actually we have, providing a service that is necessary to function. Exactly. Food. And yet, and yet we have this class character that says that food jobs are for people that have failed in life, I suppose. Right. And office jobs are for people who are doing well. Especially farming. Like if we mm-hmm. look at migrant laborers and the jobs that they are doing, people are so quick to frown upon anyone who actually produces food, grows food, and works the land. Working the land is seen as beneath nearly everybody. We see it as so low that these jobs get farmed out to illegal immigrants who are then denigrated for doing Stealing all the jobs that nobody else wants. But I also think that if we consider agriculture as the foundation of civilization, those should be exalted jobs. Why do we look down upon those so much? It's the jobs that actually bring the most joy to people's lives that are sort of the worst jobs. Uh, your Starbucks barista does a, makes you a lot happier than the person who picks up your call for Verizon Wireless. Though, <laughs> <God. laughs> so, to be fair, the people picking up the calls for Verizon aren't well paid either. That's right. true. Your Starbucks barista makes you a heck of a lot happier than the CEO of Starbucks does. Well, I think it also gets into that idea of meritocracy, where if you work hard you will be successful, which is not true. I think you had made that point earlier about um, feeling sort of betrayed, feeling like there was a lie that was told to everyone. And for like millennials especially, that lie has kind of radicalized them, I feel. Yes. You know, they see meritocracy as being, you know, a myth because they worked to go through college and they came out. And for what? Right. An entire lifetime worth of debt. That gets me absolutely nowhere. I, I personally feel really angry. Angry at the academic lies, angry at the societal lies, and to try and figure out where to manifest that anger and how best to channel it has been an interesting process also. But radicalization, I think, is, is one of the things that often accompanies that righteous indignation from being lied to. I also think that the rich have perhaps been even more obnoxious recently than ever before and have (laughs) made their... they've also (laughs) never been richer than they are now. That's true. So perhaps it's a correlation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And also have perhaps never made their um, inability to actually be better than people more apparent than they (laughs) are at this time. Uh, It's very obvious if you look at the world today that the rich don't seem to be 
any smarter than anyone I know, and perhaps they're a great bit, <laughs> great bit dumber, yeah. some of them. <laughs> yeah, the whole idea that people are wealthy because they worked hard and they deserve it is such a sham. Mm-hmm. And I guess the corollary of if you work hard, you will become rich is if you aren't rich, then you must not be working very hard. You right. must have done something wrong, and that's sort of a hard feeling to shake, even if you know how false it is. You know, If you're unemployed you know, at age 24, it's really frustrating. It's because under our current society, all these problems are individualized in so many ways. We're taught that it is our own fault for our circumstances. And if you believe that, then you're going to believe some very negative things about yourself when you wind up in negative circumstances. Not only that, but if you believe that, you will believe very negative things about others. That poor people deserve to be poor because they're not trying hard enough and they're lazy and they don't deserve good things or investment or assistance. I think that that anger that a lot of people feel because they have the sense of they are working hard and yet they are not reaping the benefits that they believe that they need. I, I think that that anger is what causes a lot of the, of the I suppose, negative solidarity yeah. that you see in workplaces. Uh, people feeling like they work hard and have not gotten their own. So they'll be damned if anyone else is going to get anything. It, I think that's probably how we got the person in charge that is currently in charge. Mm-hmm. And that's it exactly fuels it. opposition to things like raising the minimum wage in many ways. You know, right. people look at somebody working at McDonald's and say, I'm not making 15 an hour. Why right. should they? You yeah. know, I, I started a new job recently uh-huh. and I was and it was a fast food job. And during my training, when we spoke about the dress code, the trainer told us how she has a stockpile of black belts in her car because a black belt is part of the dress code that people very frequently forget. And what she said was that on certain very rare occasions, she'll even give them to people for free if they say that they don't have enough money to buy it right now. And what she said that stuck with me is because at least they are showing that they are willing to work which really stuck with me because, first of all, she was acting like this this gift of a $5 belt was unbelievable <laughs> beneficence on her part yeah, and was only merited if they showed the desire to... If they were willing to do horrible, demeaning exactly. work and wear the stupid belt. Well, this gets into sort of um, another aspect, which is what we mean by work because the people who are unemployed, they are still doing work. They are doing housework. They're, right. you know, often taking care of family members. Unpaid work. And again, you could argue that that is, to the species, the most important work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of unpaid work that is required to keep things moving along. And to... Keep the system functioning. Yeah. And so the stigmas against those who uh, are unemployed are really stigmas against people who won't work to make someone else profit. The unemployed mother is working very hard to take care of her child, but or isn't rewarded for what that. about caretaking for ill family members or friends? Yeah. That's also extremely important. All caretaking is absolutely necessary for our species to continue mm-hmm. to exist. One thing that I think unites a lot of this unpaid work and also the volunteering that people do for no money mm-hmm. is... This is all usually work of a more social character. 
than what we do in our nine to five or in our in whatever makes us our wages. The the work of a mother or of whoever is taking care of the children is obviously very social. Um, also, being unemployed gives you time to to get to know your community, to help your neighbors, to engage in all these very necessary acts that strengthen the community. However, if you think about it, our current system has a vested interest in if if things are so individualized and the responsibility is placed on the individual to work and provide profit and you know work yourself into an early grave then it's beneficial to keep people from developing community because community is grassroots strength yes and that is a threat or it can be but it's also a very short-term it, it's always trading short-term monetary profit for long-term viability so I think it's really short-sighted for anyone to feel that it's not worth supporting at-home moms. It's not worth supporting community development. Like That will keep a system viable far longer than if we undercut all of those things. So often the people who sort of espouse our viewpoints, I guess you could say, is <laughs> they're denigrated as lazy. They just – they want to sit around all day not – doing work and to that i say who doesn't <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that's true and so far we've talked about unpaid labor in terms of production but i think it's worth talking about that there's great value that can be added to your life by not producing anything by reading a book or napping <laughs> <laughs> wow learning that's an also... instrument mm -hmm. yeah They're... art music culture like, we I... need those things that's what makes life worth living Cooking, making something delicious, mm -hmm. sharing it with others. And I think that my goal as a socialist is to learn a new metric to measure the worth of my own life, of my own doings, than just what I've made, what I've produced. What your salary is. Mm -hmm. Well, you are free to use my idea of when people ask you what you do, make the distinction and tell them immediately that what you do aside from how you pay your bills, is actually much more meaningful to you. And share that with them instead. Yes. Because people are just as interested, and they, they do tend to agree that what people do to make ends meet is actually not indicative of who they are. Right, but we're all so, so used to this script that uh, right. we don't even examine it. I, I hope that when people are confronted with, with your answer, that maybe they ask themselves how much meaning they're getting out of their own jobs. Well, that's the thing, is that it forces people to examine, yeah, that is an odd question. Why do we ask that? Yeah, And it's always the first question that's asked. Absolutely. I went to my high school reunion a few years ago, and every single person that I saw that I wasn't in you know, touch with regularly, <laughs> that was the first question out of their mouths. And it was brutal. Brutal. <laughs> Most people mm -hmm. avoid high school reunions because of that. Yeah. If they're not really proud of what they're doing to make a living, they don't want to go because they don't yeah. want to tell everybody about it. Yeah. And that's the thing is nine times out of ten, those conversations are excruciatingly boring. Um, when I worked in an office and people would ask me what I did, 
I, I would say I work in an office. And then if they pressed me <laughs> for more details, I would have to go into, you know, oh, well, you see the the system generates this sheet and I have to check column D to see if all of the numbers are the same as the numbers in uh, column E. Already I've lost interest. Exactly. No one wants to talk about this. Why did you ask me? <laughs> uh, yeah, they're making small talk. That's why I automatically change the conversation not to what do I do to make ends meet, but what do I do that interests me? Mm-hmm. And what do I do for fun? Just from my own experience, I wash dishes for a living. It's not something that I am eager to volunteer as information when people ask, but, you know... It, and you didn't go to four years of college to learn how to wash dishes no, properly? No, God, no. <laughs> um, and these stigmas have real effects, I feel. these. Yeah. I mean, it, there was something I came across recently where um, unemployment is ca- the cause of 45,000 suicides a year, each year worldwide. And yeah. the sort of mental health aspects of unemployment are not pretty. We've been reading this book called uh, Inventing the Future by Nick Cernicek and Alex Williams. And It's a really great book for anybody who's interested. And there's a line in here about, uh, at its most vicious, precarity is indicated by a rise in depression, anxiety, and suicides an excess that goes uncounted in traditional economic measures. Unemployment is associated with a fifth of all global suicides, and this has only worsened in the wake of the financial crisis. So you're seeing a very real toll to our societal expectations about work. That's a result of these ideas we have about what your career arc should look like, basically. Right. I think one we've talked about unemployment and obviously how it makes you feel. It makes us feel bad. It's dehumanizing. Uh, it's dehumanizing. Society has done everything to make us to feel individually us. bad, to shame us for being unemployed. There's also the literal problems of it atomizing you in that when you're unemployed, you don't go to work, which is probably the largest you don't meet place people. to yeah. socialize and meet new people. Uh, yeah. You don't have money. You don't go out. You don't mm-hmm. uh, go out to the cafe or whatever. You don't do anything where you would see people. And that is a massively depressing That's, factor yeah, for humans. Even more isolating. That's a good point. And as we've gotten older, it's a lot more difficult. You know, even with all the social media and the ability to connect with people, it seems like those real deep connections are harder to make now than they maybe once were, or, you know, especially when we were younger and going to school, it was really easy to meet new people, make friends, um, and have extracurricular activities and meet more people outside of your own class, school, etc. Mm-hmm. But now that's increasingly difficult. And if you don't have a, a job with peers or other people that, I mean, I suppose the other problem is that you might work with people that you loathe. So you're meeting you're, people, but they're terrible. At least you're talking to someone, though. It's <laughs> still so. different from just being in your Completely. own home all day. Yeah, uh, talking to yourself all I day. I mean, just from my own experiences, uh, where I work, most of the most of my coworkers are high schoolers. They are yeah. far younger than me now. And that's something that I think Chris had mentioned on last week's show as well. So they aren't necessarily my peers. Yeah. So that aspect of underemployment also, it's a bummer. Yeah. Yeah, and that can kind of upset the the classist sort of mythology, too, that, like, I am in this job where, like, the first thing that came to mind, actually, this wasn't a job, per se, but I I am a terrible swimmer, 
and I've tried to learn how to swim. I can dog paddle like a champ, but that's about it. And so I went through so many swim classes and I got older and older and all the kids coming in stayed the same age. And so the the disparity in age made me feel more and more humiliated. And I feel like that can happen in a job too. If you feel like you're stuck someplace, especially if you need to stay there for health insurance or any other sort of benefits mm-hmm. or just to make ends meet, pay yeah. your bills um, and feel like there aren't any other options. Feeling also like you can't relate to any of the people that you work with is even worse. We had talked uh, in the preparation for this about sort of stigma against living at home, which mm. if you're unemployed, you're likely living at home. Right. Yeah. And even if you are employed, like nowadays... It makes so much more sense if you have family nearby to live with them and save up because we all have student loan debt. So if you're paying off your debt, maybe you can make some savings if you live at home. And also moving out on your own is a very Western uh, and very Western and very recent historically uh, ideal. In lots of countries, it's very normal to live at home, at least until you're married and have a home of your own or even after maybe. Yeah. You know, I just think for myself, here I am paying for rent um, in a a place that's just about the right size for me. And meanwhile, my parents are paying a mortgage on this big old house that only the two of them live in. Yeah. And why? (laughs) Yeah. And also, I've noticed that the people who consider themselves the most independent um, are usually the people who are most dependent on others to make all of their needs met. So they can pay people to do grocery shopping, cleaning, cooking, laundry, you know, drive them around, make their clothes. Well, you bring up sort of the rich and there's sort of a, a class element to unemployment, too, because Absolutely. those of us who do not have capital to our name, we are very much required to work to make ends meet. And if you do have some capital to your name, then you do not. You can laze around. And some of the and while there are mm-hmm. sort of stigmas about, you know, the idle rich, I don't think these are as significant in our as society. They should be. <laughs> as sort of the stigmas we have against the unemployed and those who do need to work to make ends meet. Yeah, it's kind of an odd thing that we hear the term lazy thrown at poor people mm-hmm. when really that makes absolutely no sense. It makes way more sense that the idle rich, mm-hmm. you know, they're the ones that are lazy. And the fact is that even if you are unemployed and you're poor, you're doing a lot of work just to get by in day-to-day life. There's, mm-hmm. there's all the bills. There's dealing with merit-based aid from the government, Ugh. which is a full-time job in itself, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. There's even facts like transportation. You know, yeah. If you're poor and you don't own a car, getting anywhere is going to take you three to four times longer than yeah. it would. And riding a bicycle all over town, especially in the Northeast where we are, all year round, that's a lot of work mm-hmm. in and of itself. And it's dangerous. <laughs> but I honestly don't know where that myth came from. It does not seem accurate or reasonable. Well, as so often in our discussion, in discussions about these issues, I, I feel like it's worth saying that there is... There are people who 
actively benefit from these stigmas. They don't right. just come from nowhere. Uh, True. You know, culture is kind of built sometimes by shady people in the background that we need to mm-hmm. to shine a light on, I think. Although we did talk in our preparation about the Protestant work ethic mm-hmm. yeah. and the fact that that is a huge source of this mythology that we have about And it's marriage. been around in this country for centuries, really. Right, but if you're talking about the global levels of suicide based on unemployment, yeah. it sounds like Th- perhaps... Those are not all Protestant countries, probably. Right, and that work <laughs> ethic, you know, they aren't all descendants of Puritans, Well, but we've exported that work <laughs> ethic elsewhere to the detriment of all. Mm-hmm. I wish we could take it back and put it in Pandora's box. And America is a massive exporter of our own culture. Yeah. Uh, that was, I, I was fortunate enough to live in the Philippines for a year. And one of the first things I noticed was that I could easily keep up on all my American movies and TV shows. So it's no surprise that we've exported our, our feelings about work and unemployment to the rest of the world. Yeah. Because that's how it gets into you is through the culture. Yeah. Well, I would note here that while we've talked sort of about societal pressures against unemployment, there are real uh, material pressures against it. You know, there's sort of the economics of unemployment, and that's something that we can get into more in this next segment. Hey, hey guys, you know that feeling you have at work, that dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LPFM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back. We discussed in our first segment the very the various uh, ways in which society views unemployment and the ways we view the unemployed and the stigmas against it. But it's it's not just societal pressures like that that make us scared of unemployment. We have very real needs that need to be met as people. We have to pay bills. We have to pay rent. We have to get money to make ends meet. Despite all these pressures against unemployment, we still live at a time when millions of people are unemployed. Why is that? Well, I don't think that's by accident. It is by design, in fact. And that book we mentioned, Inventing the Future, that we've all been reading together, has a really good quote that pretty much sums it up. In fact, unemployment as we understand it today was an invention of capitalism. Having been torn away from their means of subsistence, for the first time in history, a new surplus population emerges that is unable to find waged work. So basically, that means having been torn away from the land, so Uh subsistence farming, people are stuck in a precarious position where they no longer have access to growing or producing their own food, but they need money in order to buy food, and so they are intermediaries and they have to work for a living basically. yeah they it have necessitates to work for someone else for yeah their exploitation by profit seeking so where do the unemployed play into this well you know one of the most uh, life-changing things that happened to me when i read some marks was he talks about understanding your own labor as a commodity that you sell to someone else And the fact is that unemployment in such large numbers drives down the value of your commodity, which is of of your commodity of labor, its basic supply and demand. Uh 
when there are more workers available, in other words, the price that they are able to get for their labor, the wage that they can bargain for, is less. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's cheaper to do business with people who aren't able to value themselves highly. Yes. Getting that back to uh, inventing the future, there's a, another quote from there. Uh, Larger surpluses of labor are, on the one hand, beneficial to capitalist interests. They serve as a disciplinary tool against the working class, particularly when filtered through racism, nationalism, and sexism, and as a reserve to call upon in times of growth. They reduce wages, sow competition among workers, and shackle the ambitions of the proletariat. What does all that mean? There is quite a lot in that quote. But I think it basically gets down to the fact that like this idea of the reserve army of the unemployed pits people against each other that should actually be in solidarity with one another. It pits the unemployed against those who already have work. Mm-hmm. And it, the, but it also pits the unemployed against each other. Yeah. Because if there is a minimal number of positions available, mm-hmm. cutthroat competition is a part of the system. It's, it's incentivizing that behavior. And the, the specter of unemployment, the great fear of unemployment, will make people make compromises. They will yeah, stay right. in jobs that don't pay enough or that are abusive or that they don't like. Right. When we are so scared of being unemployed, for very legitimate reasons, let me Absolutely. say, when we are so scared of being unemployed, we have to sacrifice our feelings of solidarity, our fellow feelings with our workers uh, to get that job. And we also have to sacrifice our own integrity and principles often. And dignity, oftentimes. Often, often lying in interviews, often sort of selling a version of yourself, which... I know I personally, if I met the person I tell my interviewers that I am, I would not like him at all. <laughs> He's the biggest narc. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, you were in a phone interview in the parking lot right I before. I was. I was in a phone interview. I've actually this. done two interviews today. I was in two? a phone oh. interview in my car, and then I also had another interview this morning. And I actually... Were you the same version of yourself for both? Uh, very similar, you know. Slightly it's slightly different. Yeah, my corporate self. He um, more detail oriented. for Very, one. very detail oriented. Very <laughs> much a self starter. Um, <laughs> oh. Cares very deeply about the integrity of whatever the heck he's doing. Um, for or no actual the reason. The integrity though. of the corporation. Yes. <laughs> oh yes, of course. <laughs> oh yeah. Sorry, not personal integrity. <laughs> Never that. <laughs> no. <laughs> We talk about the sort of lies and embellishments we put on our resumes, you know, the ways we make, you know, proficient in Microsoft Office look like a great achievement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Honestly, that whole process makes me feel like I am my own pimp and I have to sell myself to anyone who will bid for me. Uh-huh. And it's degrading. It's dehumanizing. It, it is. It is. Mm-hmm. And in a way, you sort of dress yourself up to, as I was saying before, you dress yourself up in these, in... in Jargon. Yeah. Yeah, all sorts of terms that are flashy and acceptable and paint your whole resume and cover letter with them and maybe you'll have a chance. But it, it feels a lot like begging for something that we need and truthfully... They need us too because mm-hmm. 
that's the sad part is that the only way that the system is maintained is through the toil of the majority. So we are begging to be exploited, but it's even worse to not be exploited. So off mic, I was just talking about uh, one of the two interviews I went on this morning, and I thought it was a really excellent example of how the fear of unemployment, a fear which I feel very strongly at this time. Um, You're not alone. You're not alone. <laughs> how that fear of unemployment leads us to lie and to compromise our values. I actually had to take a, a little computer test of business etiquette, it was called. And I think we all sort of know what kind of test this was. It was multiple Honestly, choice. Honestly, I was at a loss. Business <laughs> etiquette. There isn't anyone that. <laughs> But just just stupid like questions. Dress code, yes. or? dress code, and then things like how should you greet your boss in the morning? Is it A, yo, bro, what's up? Is it B, good morning, boss? It was B. Good morning, uh, boss, with a capital B. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, they want you to be a little bit more under the radar on that, but definitely make sure that you're respectful. Hmm. We're no longer tugging the forelock, but there's still <laughs> that feeling. Anyway, very quickly, the questions took a turn towards this sort of anti-solidarity bent. Um, I was asked, what are appropriate items of small talk before a business meeting? Is it A, sports? Is it B, politics? Is it C, personal health? Is it D, sat, uh, your salary? Or is it A and D? So it was A and D, which is to say sports and... Oh, no, salary was prohibited, right? Oh, I messed up. Anyway, the point was, the <laughs> right answer was Not you never salary. talk about your salary. Yeah. Next question was, when is it appropriate to go out drinking with your coworkers? The answer to that one was rarely, and don't talk about work while you're out. Huh. Really? That was the answer? Mm-hmm. Huh. Wow. It was. And there were other questions to this effect, but basically I felt like I answered about 10 questions just saying, I will not practice any solidarity. I right. will. And then, and that's, and, a, that's a threat. Yeah, if you're yeah. having to jump through those flaming hoops to get hired, they are telling you that you could be fired for doing any of those things if they are discovered. Yes. And so they are laying the threats out bare in the interview process. And it's a period of relatively high unemployment historically that allows them to make these threats. You know, right. The unemployment rate has dipped over the last several years, but this doesn't account for the very many people who have dropped out of the workforce entirely. There are millions of people who have stopped looking for work because of the impacts of the recession to say nothing of the people who are underemployed because of mm -hmm. the impacts of the recession, something we got into in the last segment. Right. Um, Which and, includes all of us. Yeah. And <laughs> the, um, the effects of this high unemployment is bad news for workers. It means stagnant wages for decades, really, mm -hmm. especially compared to, you know, eras in the past where unemployment rate was closer to like 2 3% when – you know, people had and union protections for one and higher wages comparatively than they do now. And full employment was also still a specified goal. Yeah. 
which it no longer is. Mm-hmm. Now, there were sort of caveats to this full employment. This True. was a time when many True. women were not expected to work, you know. Yeah, not really allowed but, to. You know, they were shut out of the process, yeah. as were people of color mm-hmm. and people with disabilities. Yeah. The result is you had families making do with, you know, a one salary. You know, right. the, the, the husband of the household would work a union job at a factory and make enough to provide for his wife and children, right? which in a way that you wouldn't see now. And not that that's... Necessarily... You know, the drudgery of a factory job like mm-hmm. that is is not beneficial, right? I don't think, but... It's not even possible to have that drudgery now, yeah. or it, increasingly difficult to find that sort of high-paying drudgery. <laughs> there's, um, there's a measure called NARU, N-A-I-R-U. It's called the Non-Accelerating Inflation Rate of Unemployment. What does that mean in English? It's the rate of unemployment where economists theorize, they say, okay, if you're Above this rate of unemployment, then you won't have to worry about inflation increasing rapidly. And inflation is bad, I am told. Hmm. I I want to note here, just as an aside, that economics is mostly guesswork. It's, <laughs> <laughs> I think even a lot of economists are like, probably like in agreement. They're sort you. of um, like the idea that anything about the market, which is controlled by people, can be natural. Yeah. You know, it it doesn't take into account human nature, which is hard to put on an XY graph. So basically, you're saying that in order to keep inflation low, you have to keep employment ab- or unemployment. unemployment above a certain threshold. Right. And this is something that came into use in the 60s, which coincidentally saw more unemployment than you had before. Yeah. It's sort of... Instead of the goal of full employment, Under there Keynesian. was a conscious decision to move to, okay, we'll allow this amount of unemployment to keep wages from increasing and keep ah. capital and power, basically. There is a recent article of the, uh, in The Intercept that I thought was useful for illustrating this idea. There, there was a very brief uh, stock market downturn in the last month or so. It was like a pretty sizable drop over like one day or maybe a week. but And there was, and the article looked at what economists were saying was the reason for this drop. And what they were saying was wages were too high. Oh, really? Yeah. Except uh, that wages have been stagnant for how many decades now? Right. But there was like <laughs> a brief uptick in wages that was shown in like the jobs report from the month before and the market panicked at least according to the guesses by um they i can only think of one group of people whose wages are too high yeah those are ceos (laughs) to um quote from the article start with the suggestion which seems odd on its face that the market crashed because wages were seen to be rising anybody outside the financial system would immediately see wages going up as a good thing Mm -hmm. after all it's what every politician and every party says they want to see happen but for market analysts, it's a bad thing because it is said to be a signal that inflation is around the corner. So in many ways, the economy is designed to keep unemployment above a certain level, to keep wages below a certain level. To so keep that, inflation below a certain level. Yeah. And 
the article had talked about how the Federal Reserve specifically keeps interest rates low so as to help out these businesses, effectively. As all employers are doing this, Mason said, he's referring to uh, wage increases, they're competing with each other and bidding up the price of labor. Competition leads capitalists to act in a way that contradicts their collective interest. We might say their class interest. Mm. That's where the Fed comes in, he added, to protect businesses from their own worst impulses of giving workers higher wages. Their own worst impulses. <laughs> yeah. Wah, wah. Um, there was an example <laughs> we saw last year where, like, I think American Airlines or one of the airlines announced that they'd be giving, you know, as their profits increased, they would be giving more to labor instead of shareholders, and immediately their stock price dropped. Um, sort of this is the way in which the economy works to keep wages down. Well, think of who has the ability to invest in the stock market. Yeah. It's wealthy people. So that's a really quick indicator of rich people are not happy with this. Mm -hmm. Rich people do not sanction this behavior and say no. And it's worth noting, I think, that the we so often measure the economy in terms of stock prices and the Dow and the NASDAQ, whatever on earth those are. I, I don't have anything it's to do with them. It's a bunch of speculation and exactly. scare tactics. And, and we love those two things because, A, they generate a nice, easy number to talk about. Mm. And B, the media companies and all that love them because they ha actually have nothing to do with the experiences of normal people. Right. We, we need a new like metric to something measure. Something like 50% of the public owns nothing in the stock market right. and another 30% owns very little. You right. know, the majority of stock equity is concentrated among the top 10%. And I'd say that the 30% who owns very little, it's probably their retirement and yeah. they have no say over what that gets invested in. Mm -hmm. True. So they could be investing in things that are antithetical to their own <laughs> ethics and morals <laughs> without the ability to change it. And in my own course of radicalization, I have come back again and again and again to the fact that the capitalism and our own human needs forces us to act against our principles um, at every turn, including, as you were just saying. Investing in yeah. companies we might not otherwise. The way I would put it is it disperses the guilt. It makes us all guilty of you know, encouraging bad behavior by capital right. because, hey, I'm a shareholder now and I get more, higher returns when they squeeze wages. Right. We're all stuck, which makes us all com culpable. So having explained the ways in which unemployment is a tool to, it's a necessary tool for capital to weaponize against labor and keep wages down, I think there's sort of a tension here. It's, at least it's a tension if you're a worker. It's not a problem if you're with capital. That unemployment is specifically made to be a punishment in this country and some others, but particularly so in the U.S. and particularly over the last 40 years. And if I may, I think it's not only a punishment, but also a protection for the rich. And when I say the rich, I mean the, the super rich. I don't the billionaires. Mean, yeah, I don't necessarily mean 
the guy who lives on the nice side of town. I mean the guy who has vacation houses in Monte Carlo. Yeah. Um, just to make that clear, I'm trying not to not to alienate yeah. people. Not, not to demonize whole food shoppers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I I think that the very super rich are cognizant of the fact that um, worker revolution is a thing that has happened in the past and could happen again. And I think unemployment is a way to protect themselves against that because people that are unhappy with their jobs, they punch down at people who are, who are unemployed. And then it works it's, into racism and nationalism yeah, as well. That inventing right. the future quote again, it's a disciplinary thing. And it's it's almost easier as you put it, to punch down or to punch laterally, you know, to blame people who are seemingly beneath you or at the same level as you because the people who are above you are out of reach. Mm-hmm. They, you may never even see these people. Right. They are completely insulated mm-hmm. from all of the despair they cause. Now, David, you had mentioned earlier how unemployment serves as sort of a barrier to certain government benefits, right? Yeah, and I'm not a very great expert in it, but Mm. I do know... Just slightly great. (laughs) Slightly great in all aspects of life. (laughs) But I do know that I think since maybe the Clinton administration especially, uh, there was a great increase in merit-based social welfare programs Um, where people would have to prove that they are employed or that they are seeking employment. And this means that especially if you are someone who who relies on government subsidies to help feed your family and all that, that you are tied to your job even more than the rest of us are. It's um, the 96 Welfare Reform Act. It's something that was signed into law by Bill Clinton, and it had the effect of imposing work requirements effectively on what used to be just general welfare. Uh, it's, it's like taxpayer aid for needy families, I think, is the current term. And it puts limits on how much you can receive it, and it says you need to be searching for a job within X amount of time in order to continue receiving it. And we are seeing sort of a re... A renaissance? It, yes, a renaissance. That's a good... Um, in that concept of work requirements for benefits. Uh, Recently, the Trump administration uh, allowed states to apply for waivers so that they could impose work requirements on receiving Medicaid, which is the health insurance program for those living under the poverty level. And I think something like 10 or 12 states have taken them up. So even as unemployment is necessary, it is also... There's a push to punish it. There's a desire to take health insurance from people who, for whatever reason, aren't seeking work. Because it's necessary not only to have an unemployed group of people, but also to have them be denigrated. And to have um, them looking for work. Right. Have them be desperate, as desperate as possible. Um, because then they'll be willing to work for anything. To quote, once again, inventing the future... Today, many of the transformations that the welfare state is undergoing can be understood as an attempt to revive the disciplinary function of the unemployed. Their free labor in the form of workfare acts to repress wages and threaten the jobs of the employed. The figure of the job seeker imposes a norm of work on everyone, 
and attacks on disability benefits turn even those outside the labor force into a reserve army of potential workers. The unemployed have to fulfill an increasingly long list of conditions in order to gain even minimal benefits, attending training, constantly applying for jobs, listening to advice, and even working for free. We're seeing in this change to welfare, in this change to Medicaid, a conscious effort to put pressure on those who have jobs to keep their wages low because there are more people who are currently unemployed who are going to be looking for work if they need to apply for a job in order to keep their Medicaid. Right. And if those unemployed people are so desperate and willing to work for anything, then employed people should be grateful that they have the jobs that they do. However much misery they are feeling in those jobs and however exploited they are. And I think if unemployment is a punishment, then it's a punishment that disproportionately falls on vulnerable populations. Absolutely. African-American unemployment is consistently significantly higher than unemployment for white people in this country. Uh, Women, as we talked about earlier, are often caregivers. They are often, you know, taking care of their families and thus not looking for traditional employment. And so unemployment disproportionately falls on them. Um, There was a recent piece in the Washington Post about these sort of changes to Medicaid and the waivers. And uh, Elizabeth Brunig writes, what Workfare does is force recipients to choose between important benefits and familial obligations. The major accomplishment of Workfare was that the share of welfare mothers engaged in work activities doubled to about a third, and work levels also rose sharply for poor single mothers. Daycare shortages ensued. Women without enough money to support their families were forced to pay for child care. If they couldn't afford it, they lost their benefits, which would mean, in the case of Medicaid, sacrificing their health. Ugh, what a nightmare. It's... And the trouble with childcare is that it's so expensive that you could be working just to afford childcare. So you're not making anything outside of paying for childcare. Which, of course, you need the childcare to. To work. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, it does perpetuate the cycle of of poverty and desperation and lack of education when kids are not being raised by their families. Um, they, right. they might not be able, they might not be given the skills that we need to succeed in this world as it's set up. Yeah. Um, I'd also be remiss if we didn't mention that um, this is a punishment that disproportionately falls on the dis- disabled. We had an episode a couple of weeks ago about disabilities, people, adults with disabilities seeking employment and the mm-hmm. difficulties they face in doing so. And it's a punishment that falls on those who can't go to college because college degree, you get higher rates of employment. If you don't have one, you're more Perhaps. likely to be unemployed. But it's prohibitively expensive well, yeah. for many people, an increasing right. amount of people. So if you can't afford to afford, if you can't afford to go to college, then you're more likely to face this punishment. It's not necessarily spelled out in the law as a punishment that is aimed or targeted towards these groups, but this is the effect it has. Making poor and vulnerable people poorer and more vulnerable. Yeah. it's Again, it's a way of dispersing the guilt. And I think unemployment, um, the stigma against unemployment is a stigma that many people feel that they hold legitimately. 
um, mm, you know, that it was their idea somehow. Yeah, sort of. They've you know, they'll say, you know, it. that's just the way the world works. You gotta work for what you need in this life. That's just the way it is. And if you don't work, then I mean, you're just not worth living. I guess. Yeah, pull yourself uh, up by the bootstraps. And exactly. Get a job. So, and I think that that what what they see is a legitimate. Uh, dislike they have towards the unemployed, it then feeds into the racism and the sexism and the ableism that is lurking beneath the surface. They are able to... uh, Justify all that hatred. Exactly. And they are able to use their unemployment rhetoric as a dog whistle for all that other stuff. In a way, the social stigmas we talked about earlier on this episode reinforce the political and the economic, the... uh, Perpetuates the, the system. Yeah, the decisions by those in power to make things the way they are. And to keep themselves in power and and maximize their power mm-hmm. at the expense of all others. This has been a bleak segment, but we'll be back with a bit of hope after this break. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. If you enjoy our show, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. If you'd like to share your stories, you can email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Back to the show. Welcome back. Um, we've been talking this show about the various pressures that we have against unemployment in American society, modern society. And we wanted to end the show with envisioning a different way of doing things. How can we go about a world in which unemployment is less of a punishment? What would that look like? Or, in fact, not a punishment at all, but just a great way to spend your time. I think we all <laughs> love not being at work. Yeah. <laughs> Maximize leisure time. <laughs> but I was thinking that you know, if, if we agree that CEOs are no more deserving as human beings of their wealth and having their basic needs met, then we agree that all human beings are deserving. Mm -hmm. That leads us to think about things like universal basic income, which would give everybody a baseline of wealth for which to, yeah, get their basic needs met. It also includes universal health care because everyone deserves to have access to health care, not just rich people. And I think... Allowing everybody to have equitable access to having their basic needs met takes the edge right off of the punishment that unemployment currently... And and what it also does is it takes the edge off unemployment as a weapon used by capital against those who have jobs. Right. And it also takes away that cutthroat competition Uh aspect that perpetuates the system because people aren't having to fight over almost non-existent resources if they have their basic needs met. And what I love about universal basic income as a concept is it makes me think of that thing that pundits are always saying about how a, a budget represents the priorities... Of a country. Yeah, thank you. And in the same way, I think a universal basic income is sort of the economy's way and the country's way of saying every person has dignity, every person has worth, and here we can express that in actual dollars and cents. Yeah, by virtue of the fact that we all exist, we are deserving of care. Mm -hmm. There was a great line on last week's show, uh, 
Ariel said it. Um, he said um, he was talking about like fast food workers, and he said these people are no less deserving of dignity and respect than somebody who works at a metal factory. And I think it is on us to extend that dignity and respect to even the unemployed. Absolutely, because uh-huh. they are human beings just as anyone else. Uh-huh. And if we take the view that these sort of societal stigmas lead to policy decisions, then in theory we can create pressure towards policies that are less punitive. I believe that even if we uh, our goals were made and people no longer had the need to work, I believe that many people would still work. They would just Absolutely. they would do labors of love. They would do things that actually brought them fulfillment. And not only their own lives would be enriched, but I'm sure all of our lives would be enriched if more people were following their passions. Yeah, because if you think about it, what people do in their leisure time takes a lot of work, mm-hmm. effort, energy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, musical instruments, um, reading or writing books. Um, learning languages, making art, all of these things enrich our lives and make life worth living. And that gets back to the idea we started this show on, which is that those things, the things we do not for someone else's profit, are closer to our identities than our occupations are. Absolutely. And some people who are maybe are not so artistic, um, they also, in their free time, they upkeep their properties Um, There was a retired man in my town who actually, there was a a hill that was very, very steep and there was no good way down. People were falling and he built a set of stairs to go up the hill because he was, yeah, he had nothing else to do. He saw a need. He built these stairs. Were they well built stairs? Oh yeah. No, this guy knew what he was doing. Yeah. There's (laughs) a lady in my neighborhood around the corner who just finds little pieces of land and plants flowers on them and, and gardens this all over This sort of gets to something which we didn't touch on this show, but um, retirement, which is a form of unemployment, though we don't think of it in those terms. And, and, many, and recent trends suggest that fewer people are enjoying retirement. They're working l- later into their lives. Yeah, well, I've always mm. kind of thought that you know, once I realized the the myth of employment after college, I also realized the myth of retirement for our generation. Yep. There's no guarantee of that. Plus, are any of you guys saving for retirement? Do you have <laughs> a 401k or an IRA or any of that stuff? There was stuff? a recent statistic where like two-thirds of millennials do not. Right. I'm honestly shocked that one-third does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. We, we My, promised uh, that this would be a hopeful story <laughs> for this already. turn. Oh, well, I wasn't going to say anything very hopeful. I was saying that my <laughs> retirement plan is the same as my health care plan, which is... Uh, <laughs> Just hope. Well, I guess the takeaway from this is that if things are the way they are by design, mm-hmm. then can, we can have a different design. Yeah. We aren't stuck with what we have. Mm-hmm. And if we can imagine something better, then we can work towards it. The The economy is not this force of nature that so many people assume it to be. It is the product of decisions and choices, and we can make more equitable, more decent choices. I think we need a new new philosophy of value, a new understanding of what creates value. You mentioned your neighbor or the lady in your neighborhood Mm -hmm. planting flowers, and what she is doing is she is adding value to the land around her, to people's lives, but it's not economic value necessarily. It's not producing profit for 
a right. boss who makes exactly. more than he pays her. So until we can decide that there are things far more valuable than profit for a few people, we will be stuck with the system that we have. But I think most people would agree that there are many kinds of value, mm-hmm. some of which are inherently more valuable than others. And profit for the few at the expense of the many is illogical and unreasonable. So to close this show, we want to leave you with the idea that another world is possible. I'm Ryan. I'm David. I'm Rachel. This is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. <laughs>